We're going to be reading our next Bible reading now, which comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, I'm going to be reading the whole chapter, starting from verse 1 until 16. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against against them, them, let them them serve serve as as deacons. deacons. In In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife, and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. This is God's word. Thank you, Michelle. Now, if you you are at home, uh, keep your Bibles open. We'll, We'll work through this passage And it is a timely passage for us, especially today as we're thinking about nomination for new eldership. Uh, But let's come to God in prayer once again. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we reflect on this passage, that it might not merely be information for our minds, but something that your Spirit will take, apply to our hearts, and change us, that our lives might be conformed into the likeness of your dear Son, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you might do that even for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a passage like this is not one that any one of us should take lightly. In fact, I feel very self-conscious coming to a passage like this because it seems to set such a high standard of what is expected of leaders and especially leaders within the church. And so for myself anyway, it feels quite daunting, a little bit intimidating just to reflect on this passage. Frightening, even, because what is the standard that is expected of those who lead? In fact, a few months ago, I was uh, reflecting on this passage with a group of guys, and, and I asked all of us, 
Well, why don't we reflect on this passage with our wives? So I ask them all, uh, go home, ask your wife, what are the two areas of weaknesses where you need to experience more of God's grace? And so I went home, spoke to Yvonne about this, and that evening, it was a very interesting evening. And so I asked Yvonne, where am I weakest amongst these qualifications and characters? And so she, in a sense, said, well, where do I start? It was a long, humbling meeting with her. But that's how it feels, isn't it? When you come to a passage like this, and especially those of us who have been entrusted to lead others within the church, and I'm sure many of us feel the same way the Apostle Paul felt when he said, who is equal to such a task? But why is it important that as a church we are reminded and we reflect on and think about what is expected in leaders who lead in the church? Why is it important? Well, firstly, it's not only because we are starting the nomination process of thinking about who will be leaders over our church, who will lead with our existing elders. Not only because of that, but perhaps even more importantly because of what we have seen so far in this letter. You see, without godly, faithful leaders in the church, the church can end up in all sorts of strife. It only takes half a generation, if you recall, for the gospel to be assumed, and that is a short road to apathy and then antagonism against the gospel. And perhaps to make sure it doesn't happen, of course, God is sovereign. Jesus will build his church. He will take care of his own. But perhaps even humanly speaking, that falls largely on the shoulders of the leaders God has appointed. You see, when a church goes wrong, it often and very often begins with the leaders. If you think about it, life for a Christian is a spiritual battle. And if the devil wants to destroy the church, who does he aim for? Now, of course, he's aiming for all Christians, trying to get us on, off track and, and divert our attention and, and cast our gaze off Jesus onto something else. But the devil often aims for the leaders. And when the leaders fall and fail, the church is obviously hurt by it and Christ is dishonored. Now, before any one of us think, well, this passage, it sounds good, it is important, but I'm not a leader. This doesn't apply to me. Well, yes, it does. It applies to you as well. You see, what is expected of Christian leaders is expected of all Christians. And so what we see here is not as though the elders of the church are not to get drunk, but because I'm not an elder, I can get smashed every Friday evening. Not at all. Or because leaders are meant to be leaders and elders, and these qualifications apply to them, so they need to be gentle and self-controlled. But because I'm not an elder, then I can just get angry and I can lose my temper because it doesn't apply to me. Not at all. It applies. You see, what we read here applies to all Christians. The difference is that in our elders, we are meant to see these characteristics and qualities exemplified so that they are examples to us. They are to really model to us normal, ordinary Christian living. I want you to note that. Ordinary, normal Christian living. 
It's not, they're not meant to model to us something that is supernatural, superhuman, super apostle even, but just what it looks like to be an ordinary Christian in our world. And so when they make mistakes, and leaders do, of course, they understand the grace of Jesus. They repent. They are shaped by the gospel of Jesus. Or when even elders are hurt and wrong, they show forgiveness. They are shaped by the gospel. They show what it looks like to live the ordinary Christian life that is expected of all Christians. But they exemplify that to us. It was the theologian, uh, Don Carson, who once said, These qualifications are remarkable for being unremarkable. Though it seems like such a high standard, it is not a high standard at all. It is normal standard for every Christian. And so let's have a look at this passage. What are we to look for in eldership? Well, it's worth spending some time just understanding the different terms here. Paul speaks of two, in a sense, two church leadership positions. You've got your overseer and you've got your deacon. The overseer sometimes is translated as bishop. The overseer, the bishop, is also your elder and also your pastor. They are all the one same role. They speak different aspects of that same person, but the same role. And so the elders within our church, they are also your pastor. They are also your bishop or your overseer. They speak of different aspects of that same role. And so the elder speaks of seniority and maturity that qualifies a person for leadership in the church. To be a pastor speaks of being entrusted by God to pastor, to care for, to shepherd his flock, to protect them, to nurture them, to nourish them as an under-shepherd under Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. And of course, to be an overseer or bishop speaks of the responsibility to oversee, to equip, to train, to extend the ministry of the gospel. And so three different terms, three different responsibilities, but the same person, that is the overseer. And then we read of the deacon, which literally means the one who serves or the one who ministers. And we can see from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, that that office in the church was established to free up the apostles so that they can focus on the ministry of the word and to prayer. And so ministries such as mercy ministries, caring for the widows and orphans and those in need, and also administrative task. And so in our church, though we don't have an official deacon office, our board of management and our carers team function like our deacons. And so in the church, there are these two leadership roles, the pastor, the overseer, the elder, and then you've got the deacon. And so what are we meant to look for in an elder? Well, three things we see here. Firstly, conviction, and then character, and then competency. So first, conviction. What we want to see in those who lead us is a conviction that is driven and grounded in the gospel. Someone who understands so wholeheartedly, Jesus bled and died for me. The Son of God gave up his life for me. He's, he's loved me so much. The breadth and depth of the love of God in Jesus Christ is so profound. 
and I'm convicted by the Spirit of God within. I'm compelled to serve. And perhaps God has placed on my heart to serve him in that capacity, even though it might feel outside my comfort zone, to stretch me, to challenge me, to even lead his people as a pastor. But there is that conviction to serve in such a way. Or the word that is used here is desire. A desire not for an office or status, but a desire for a good work, a noble task. Now, of course, God will use his people in all sorts of different ways. The picture of the body of Christ, we all have a part to play. But one of the parts is to lead. And so we see in verse 1, here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. A task which means more responsibility. Now, again, we have to remember what it looks like in the church as opposed to what is in the world. To, to go up in the world means you go up more privileges, more honor, greater honor, and so forth. Not in the church. In a sense, to assume a leadership role means greater responsibility. It doesn't mean going up. It means going down. That's what Christian leadership looks like. And so in those who lead, there needs to be that conviction. Perhaps God has placed it on my heart to serve him in such a capacity. Next we see character. Now out of the 15 qualifications, 14 of them are about character. Which means what you want to see in a, an elder is not so much in what they do, but who they are. Their being rather than their doing. Now, what does that tell us already? It tells us what God is interested in in his leaders. Not so much IQ at all or worldly success when it comes to leading his people. You may even be the CEO of a multinational, a great corporate leader. But it doesn't automatically qualify you to be a leader of God's people. God is after being a being Christ-like in character. And our leaders are meant to exemplify that. And so here, looking down this list, the first 12 has to do with how deep and thorough my trust and obedience in Jesus looks like. Privately, personally, in my speech, in my attitude, in my desires. And so look at verse 2. And verse 2 serves like a, a summary verse for what follows. Now the overseer must be above reproach. And what does that mean? Well, it means there are no obvious character flaws so that this person will not be open to any accusations within the church and also outside the church. And so... He's the guy where you observe his life, you see how he lives, you live with him, and you see what he's like, and you think, well, I wouldn't want this guy to be leading me. He's not a man of integrity, of honesty. He's irresponsible, unreliable. If it's such a guy, they're not that guy. Instead, the overseer must be above criticism. You can't level a blame against him. He is above reproach. That's what it means. Next we read verse 2. The husband of but one wife. It means that he is a one woman man. Which means it is speaking about his 
faithfulness. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that elders have to be married. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he was a single man. Jesus was single. In fact, the oldest elder in our church, when he became an elder, he was a single man. But what Paul is speaking about here is faithfulness to the one wife. And perhaps, sadly enough, I'm sure many of us will be aware of how have fallen on this account. I remember the church I grew up in. One of the ministers we had, after leaving our church, we discovered that he was having an affair with a member of the church. It was so shocking to hear. Both of them with their own wives, or spouses, families, and then what happened? Divorces, two divorces, two destroyed families, two broken families. It's, it's terrible. terrible. How, How could a leader, leader or a minister of a church do such a thing? thing? But, but what made it worse was that after leaving our church, he got a job as a minister of another church. I mean, you think, did they not read this passage? How could they have let him lead a church when he did not show that he's a one-woman man? That he is a faithful man. Whether he was gifted or not, that did not matter. It disqualified him. You see, our world has such a different standard when it comes to fidelity. Infidelity amongst our political leaders, corporate leaders, even the president. That might be tolerated, but not within the church. Verse 2, we read on. Temperate, self-controlled, respectable. Now this speaks of being measured, calm, able to exercise self-mastery, being led by wisdom, a stability and maturity in faith. And so the guy who is hot-tempered, who's temperamental and erratic, the guy who, where you have to sort of like walk around on eggshells around him just in case he erupts and explodes, well, not that type of guy. Instead, they're meant to be able to manage themselves well. And so you look at their life and you see, well, this person has his life in order. He has his life in control and under control. And so even when something difficult, controversial arises, they are measured in their response, not flying off the handle. And let me say, the elders we have in our church... We have had to deal with some controversial topics and issues and difficult things, very difficult things. But they've always been so measured and steady and calm in their attitude. That's what we want. Well, next we read verse 2, still hospitable. The word literally means a lover of stranger. Now, of course, being hospitable is not just a requirement for those in leadership, they only exemplify that, but it's expected of all Christians. We're meant to be hospitable, loving and caring and welcoming those who we do not know into our homes. And perhaps that might be a slight challenge, a small challenge for all of us. When was the last time we showed some form of hospitality? Whether it's welcoming over, inviting over for a meal, taking out for a coffee, including others in our family lives, and especially our single brothers and sisters. They are to be hospitable. Verse 3, 
not given to drunkenness. Now, this is, of course, connected to being self-controlled. Not given to addiction and addiction to alcohol. Now, you may have seen or heard or experienced even the damage, the disaster of those who binge drink, of those who are addicted to alcohol, how much it destroys and how much it even destroys families. And I've seen that firsthand. It is not good. In fact, this really speaks of any type of addiction, doesn't it? Addiction to pornography, that is a disqualification. Verse 3, moving on. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Which means our leaders must, must show a gentleness in their speech. And so even with those they disagree with, when there is a difference of opinion, they show grace and charity. Not those who want to pick a fight, who want to win the argument just because they want to win the argument and completely neglect the person and their feelings and what lies behind their argument. Those who are not peaceable in any way are, in a sense, disqualified. But you want to see and look for those who are peaceable, who are gentle. In verse 3, we move on. Not a lover of money. Now, it's not talking about those who have money, who have been blessed in such a way, but those who are not lovers of money. And why? Well, simply because our, attitudes toward, our attitude towards money reflects our heart. It is a spiritual matter. Is my love for money what drives me in life? Or is it my love for Jesus and my seeking first the kingdom of God that drives me in life? And how do you tell if someone is not a lover of money? Well, one of the ways is that they are extremely generous. They can see, all I have, I'm a steward of all that God has entrusted to me. And God wants me to be generous with it. And so not those who are lovers of money. Now we need to recall as we're going down this list, these are expectations of elders, however, not just elders but all Christians. And so do you see what I mean? When looking at a list like this, it can feel quite daunting as we self-reflect because these qualities are meant to be evident, not just on the Sundays. I mean, it's quite easy to behave on the Sunday and to look good and look like, make it look like our life is all in order, not just on the one day or for the two hours on the Sunday, but every day, 24-7. And that's what the Apostle Paul goes on to speak of. Even in your household, even in your home, you can't behave any differently at home. And so verses 4 to 5 we read, He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Why? If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And so what that is saying is that those who lead in the household of God must lead well in their own households. It's not saying here they'll need to have a perfect home, perfect wife, perfect kids, not, in, not at all. Who can be perfect? What it's saying is that he needs to have it in order, managed well. Kids who are obedient. And of course, when things go wrong, the father knows how to manage that and handle that and keep it under control. And so an example, 
I heard a story of a pastor who's been serving for many years. And when his teenage daughter grew up, during her teenage years, she, she was sort of like the wheels came off. She was so rebellious, acting out of line, and it was going on for quite a while, and it was obvious. And so what did this father do? He sat his daughter down, and he said to her quite solemnly, if you continue in this way, then I'll have to step down from the ministry. He managed his household well, and eventually, by the grace of God, her daughter got her act together. But what that highlights is the importance of family life amongst those who lead us, who lead the family of God. In a sense, their family life should be known by us as well. And that is because they are to model to us what ordinary, not what extraordinary, but what ordinary Christian life is meant to look like. Which means it is a very good thing for the church family to pray not only for those who lead you, but for their families as well. And I must say how much I appreciate and are grateful for those prayer warriors amongst us who let me know that we've been praying for you and your family. Verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or who may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Which means we do not want to give anyone a big head. You know, such a big head you can't fit through the door. Not at all. Which means that we need to be careful not to push anyone into leadership too quickly, too soon. And then verse 7. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So do you see how wide-ranging these expectations are? Not just within the church, not just within the household, but outside in public. Not just respectable here, but everywhere. Amongst the colleagues, the friends, the neighbours. And so when you go and ask the neighbour of a guy, what is this guy like? And if they're saying, oh man, I cannot stand that guy, this guy is crazy. Well, not such a guy as an elder. But instead if they say, he's, a, he's an honest guy. He's a good guy. He is respectable. Well, such a man. Because if an elder or a leader of a church fails, who do you think rejoices most? It is the devil. I mean, he's over the moon each time he sees a leader fall and bring dishonor to Christ. And so that's, that's the list for eldership. So how do you think we are faring? As you reflect on what is expected and as you even reflect on your own life and your own character, how do you think you're faring? Now remember, it's not a core for perfection because we cannot be perfect. But it is a core for a life that has taken hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or more, perhaps accurately, a life where the gospel of Jesus has taken hold of and has changed and the Spirit of God is convicting, changing, conforming into the likeness of Jesus such that our character is a reflection of His and that it is evident for all to see. And so here we've got conviction, character, where Paul spends most of his time, but competence. Now, do you notice that I skip one of those qualifications? You see, being an elder is largely about being, not doing. 
being like Christ, not doing stuff. But there is one idea where one area where an elder must be competent in, and that is in verse two. Able to teach. An elder must be able to teach. It is the one gift he has to have. And what does that mean? Well, you see, to be able to teach the Word of God faithfully, it means I have to understand the Word of God. I have to be able to handle the Word of God. And second, I have to be able to effectively communicate the Word of God. And so you might have those who know a lot, know a lot of theology and doctrine and systematics and biblical theology and original languages and verbal aspects. You might have someone who knows a lot, but they cannot articulate the Word of God. They cannot explain it. Well, in a sense, that disqualifies a person. Not saying that they're less important in any way at all, but it disqualifies that person for leadership in the church. Or, likewise, the flip side, those who have the gift of the gab. They're great storytellers. They're so engaging. They're great communicators. But they cannot handle faithfully the Word of God. Well, that person is also disqualified. Now, of course, this does not mean by teaching, only giving sermons. Not at all. But it is teaching the Word of God in the broader sense. And so our kids' church teachers, as you handle and teach the Word of God. Our youth leaders, as you teach and disciple the youth of our church. Our growth group leaders, as you meet weekly with a small family of God and teach them. Those who disciple one-to-one, those who take upon them or under them a couple where they disciple in marriage, in parenting. It is teaching the Word of God in the broader sense. Now, why do you think elders must have this one gift to be able to teach? It is a very important point, and that is it is to demonstrate to the church that the leadership of the church is tied with the Word of God and not in an office. And so when elders are able to teach well, what they are demonstrating is that they understand it, they can communicate it, and that their lives reflect what they teach. They are to be examples to us. So that's the elder. Now what about the deacons? Well, I won't spend too long on this, apart to highlight a few points. The godliness of character that is expected in deacons is pretty much identical to what is expected in elders. It shows that God is concerned with our godliness. That's the first thing. Second, in verse 11, it could refer to the wives of deacons, or it's more likely to be referring to female deacons. And so you can have female deacons or deaconesses, and Phoebe was an example of that. The third point, do you notice that with the deacons, they are not expected to teach? However, in verse 9, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. And so though it is not expected that deacons teach, though deacons can of course teach, they must demonstrate their determination to hold on to the gospel of Jesus, which simply means all those in Christian leadership better be genuine Christians. And so that's the deacon. And so finally, what does it mean for our church family? Well, perhaps a few closing remarks. We need to be aware of what the 
leaders. We need to have that clarity. What a church needs from our leaders, and especially as we think about new elders in our church, is not charisma. It's not someone who can entertain us, who is fun. It's not someone who is super gifted in everything. What does a church ultimately need from our leaders? It is godliness. Godliness in all stations of life. Godliness around the clock. Godliness that shows that God's Spirit has worked in that person's life and has changed that person's life, has transformed that person's life. Godliness such that our elders will be able to humbly say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so perhaps for those of you who lead, and that is across the board, whether it's amongst our kids, our youth, our growth groups, today is a day to reflect on this passage. What area of my life am I strongest in? And by the grace of God, we can praise God for that. But what areas of my life am I weakest in? And perhaps that is something to take time to reflect on with a close, trusted friend, with a spouse. Where am I weakest in that I need God's grace to shape me? It was in the 1800s when Scottish minister Robert Murray McShane, he said, The greatest need of my people is my personal godliness. Which is why in the training program that I've spoken about with our potential uh, leaders of the church or elders, what I make clear at the induction of our staff, so when Ollie and Michelle started, this was an important point. What the church needs from you is simple but profound, and that is your godliness. Second, how do you decide who to nominate to lead you as we reflect on this season where we're thinking and praying about new elders? Well, of course, considered all that we have considered in this passage. And consider those who already act and behave like elders. Not expecting that someone will suddenly change when they become an elder, but reflect and consider those who already act and behave like elders. Now, this may or may not be a desire they have yet, but their lives display that. It may be a way God is directing them, but certainly commit this whole thing to your prayers. And finally, we cannot forget that what is expected in this passage is expected of all Christians, you and me. It is the ordinary, normal Christian life that God expects. Our leaders exemplify that, but it is for all of us. And it is how the household of God is to conduct ourselves. Which means, those of us who do not lead, we must be careful not to set such a standard we expect of our leaders, but not of ourselves. And we only see the speck in, there, uh, in them, but not the log in our own eye. Instead, we want to be a church where leaders and everyone within our church lead and demonstrate a life of godliness, such that by our lives and as the world looks upon us, they see a display of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, 
said it, by our lives. We are showing that our lives are not ours, but it belongs to Jesus. Our lives have been shaped by the life and example of Jesus. Our lives will have salvation and security because of the death of Jesus for us. And in our lives we have this hope that keeps us persevering and pressing forward because of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. You see, by our lives, our godliness, that's the mystery, we are displaying the gospel. We're showing how the gospel has taken shape of our lives. And that's how the Apostle Paul ends this passage. Do you notice that in verse 16? Beyond all question, the Apostle says, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by the angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. That is a summary of the gospel. And how do you see that? Well, in the lives of Christians. Our lives need to display that truth. And so perhaps today, to conclude, this is a passage for all of us, not just those who lead, not just those who may be potential elders, but for all of us to do some self-reflection. And of course, we do need to pray that our lives will display the glorious gospel of Jesus. And we do pray for our leaders that their lives will exemplify that and model that to us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know we are broken sinners in need of grace all the time. We thank you that because of the grace of Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection, and as your Spirit takes that and applies it to our hearts, we are changed, we are transformed, we are convicted to press forward in perseverance. And so we pray, Lord, that what we learn, we not just look in the lives of others, but we reflect upon ourselves. And we pray, Lord, that you will change us. And we also pray for our church as we reflect on eldership. Give us wisdom and unity as we move forward to electing elders to lead us, to love us, and to model to us the example of Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.